Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. He kōna e pūrangi tēnei nā te reo irirangi o Aotearoa. Hello? changing world. Nā mihi nui and a very big welcome to Our Changing World. Ko Alison Balance tēnei. New Zealand experiences plenty of earthquakes and many of them are quite big. Between 1840 and 2017 there were 132 earthquakes that were large enough to have the potential to cause fatalities. 21 of those earthquakes caused at least one death, with 489 deaths overall directly attributable to an earthquake. Not counting, of course, the many thousands of injuries. In the last decade alone, we've gone through the Canterbury earthquake sequence that started in 2010 and included the devastating 2011 Christchurch earthquake. There was the 2013 Cook Strait earthquake sequence that damaged buildings in Wellington and Marlborough, and the widespread 2016 Kaikoura, or Culverdon, earthquake sequence. This week we're talking about earthquakes and unpredictability. Not the unpredictability of the earthquake itself, but human behaviour during and after shaking. And it turns out that what we do can significantly alter our chance of getting injured. Official advice in a quake is to drop, cover, hold. But is this what we actually do, and... What happens if we do something else? These questions interest GNS Science social scientist David Johnston, who's also director of the Joint Centre for Disaster Research at Massey University in Wellington. I began by asking him how he responded when the magnitude 6.6 Lake Grasmere or Cook Strait earthquake rocked the capital in 2013. We were having a workshop at the university on gender and disasters. So we were looking at how different people respond to disasters. And one of our speakers was a PhD student, Robin Tui, and she had done her research looking at older adults' response to disasters, including the Canterbury earthquake. But what she was talking about was some of her findings that older adults had found it difficult to participate in some of the shakeout exercises, the drop, cover, hold, because they find dropping difficult. And actually some of the social stigmas around not being able to do that. And at the moment she said older adults have difficulty doing drop, cover, hold, the Cook Strait earthquake struck. So we immediately dropped, covered and held. I was under the tables in the lecture room with about 40 people as the earthquake shook the building. And it was a fair shake. And then the university, Julie, um, we stayed where we are, then we were told to leave the buildings for the inspections. So actually it was interesting how 
we we discussing the topic of drop cover hold when the earthquake struck. And that led to some of my interest in that as a research topic about what do adults, children, what do people do during earthquakes? What do they actually do? And how does our advice shape up with what actually happens? Well, let me tell you my experience of that, and then you can tell me how average or not I was. So I'm actually quite well prepared in my office. I've thought carefully about where I would go under my desk and how I might get out of the building and things like that. But I happened to be out in the cable car lane buying a coffee from a little hole-in-the-wall coffee shop and the earthquake struck and it was a very short, violent one from memory. And I stood there like a stunned mullet because I just was looking around going, I haven't thought about what I'd do in this situation. I'm in this arcade with an enormous amount of concrete above me and I don't know if that's a good thing or a bad thing. So I just stood there as the barista behind the bar catapulted out from his little cubbyhole going, I'm not going to die with the cable car crashing into me. I have to say it didn't occur to me to drop cover hold. So that's interesting because what we have looked at and we worked after the Canterbury earthquake was really asking the question, what do people actually do in earthquakes? So we have this advice, drop cover hold, and I'll come back to that. But what we found from the Canterbury earthquakes, and we looked at it three ways. So one of the things we did was we undertook some surveys around people describing what they did. What we were interested also was what people did from other ways. So CCTV gave us an opportunity to observe people, so obviously examining CCTV footage. And a more detailed assessment was done. We were accessed the CCTV from the Canterbury Hospital um, with some quite strict ethics around the access to the data, so we weren't identifying anyone. And one of another student undertook a study looking at what people actually did. And what we find in both the self-reported survey, but also in the examination of the CTV, less than 20% of people actually drop covered hold. Most people just stopped where they were. Now, what we were interested also is what actually happens to people during these earthquakes. And one of the things we have access in New Zealand, which is quite unique, was the medical records from ACC. So anyone injured in earthquakes, whether they seek medical attention, whether it be hospital or private, actually fill in the same form. So we have a globally significant data set here, richer than any, almost anywhere in the world, about injuries from the earthquakes. And we now have eight injury-causing earthquakes since the first one on the 4th of September 2010. And working with the medical school at Otago and Massey University, but also Genius Science and ACC, we've actually been able to look at what actually happens in terms of the injury burden from the system. And what was really interesting in that is one of the questions on the form is describe how you were injured. So we've got over 18,000 injuries where we're able to look at it. So these are 18,000 injuries related in some way to, to the earthquakes. earthquakes. To earthquakes. Gosh, that's actually a lot. That's a lot. Most of them are minor, and minor is an interesting one because it does affect people. What we're able to do is then obviously look at some questions. So who is more likely to be injured? Are there particular groups? Is location important? Time of day? And one thing that came very obvious when we looked at it, and traditionally injuries were just injuries, 
was that actually we could separate the injuries into two types, and we have classified them, and this is just the terms we use, either passive injuries or action injuries. Passive injuries are where people are injured by things hitting them. They were hit by masonry, they fell over, they hit the ground. The earthquake led to them being injured. Action injuries, which were where someone undertook an action that led to an injury. So they ran for cover, tripped over, trod on glass during an action. And the proportions differed. So in the earthquake on the 4th of September around midnight, the majority, two-thirds of the injuries, were caused by people taking action leading to an injury. So getting out of bed. Getting out of bed, running somewhere. And we see that in the 22nd of February earthquake, the more devastating one in Canterbury, actually the ratio was the other way around. So two-thirds of the injuries were caused by things hitting people. But that was in the middle of the day and people were out and about. I mean, it's an obvious and simple conclusion is that injuries are caused not just by things hitting you, but are also determined by the actions that people take at the time of shaking or immediately after. Now, if we are thinking from an injury prevention point of view, You can reduce injuries from making sure things don't hit people. But those engineering or structural approaches won't address human behavior. So that's more around education, teaching people what to do during an earthquake. And if you go back to the injury burden from the 4th of September, there were about 2,500 injuries. Many of them were preventable in the sense that if some people had done nothing, they may not have been injured. Now, doing nothing is, you've got to take some caution on that because it's natural for parents to go to children during an earthquake. People are looking for cover and trying to take actions. But we need to think about that actually maybe the the actions they're taking may contribute to the injury they caused. Now, we find that action injuries are normally just the minor injuries. So the major injuries and loss of life are caused by structural issues about things hitting people, crushing them. So behavioural response will not change those that injury burden. That's around strengthening buildings, it's around land use planning, it's around unreinforced masonry and other soft fittings and structural elements. So there's a number of points that you've raised there. So for a start, one of them is where you are at the time the earthquake happens. For instance, are you in bed? Are you just in your house? Are you Mm. outside? Mm. So that's going to determine initially what you might do. So something like the Kaikoura earthquake, which happened in the middle of the night and you were in home in bed, should people just stay in bed? I think you should stay in bed unless something is going to cause direct harm for you, falling on you, bookshelf. Actually doing nothing might be a better option. And and tragically, in the Canterbury earthquakes, the one during the day on the 22nd, there are some people who, if they had done nothing, would have been better off than they had done something. Sometimes doing the wrong thing can be more harmful than doing nothing. Now, there are situations where people did dive into doorways, did move away, and that prevented their loss of life. So there are times where doing something may be good for your life safety, but in most cases, actually... Moving during earthquake shaking is not a good idea. So we say drop, cover, hold, but I do suggest we should think about the first action as being stop. Think about where you are. Stopping your movement, stopping your driving, stopping what you're doing is a better first action than taking some action that in itself 
may lead to harm. If there's a violent earthquake and you're trying to move against it, you're more likely to be injured than doing nothing. So dropping the drop cover hold, the dropping lower your centre of gravity will prevent you from falling. But sometimes it may be better just to stand, hold on to something, and that's the advice for older adults or people who can't aren't as mobile or disabled, is to actually just stop where you are, secure yourself where you are. And often that will be much safer action than taking the wrong action or trying to move during earthquake shaking. So, for instance, if you're in a wheelchair, put your brakes on. Yes. Assume that pose that they talk about on airline safety briefings, maybe. Yeah. So just stay where you are and ride it out. Now, if you can lower your centre of gravity by getting down, that's a good thing. And if things are coming down, your inability to get some cover, whether it be a table or something, that is a good thing. This notion often we talked about, there's old folklore about running to a doorway, but that can be problematic. Most doors are not structural units, so you're no actually safer there. I also remember something from one of the Christchurch earthquakes where people were saying, and maybe it was a doctor friend of mine, saying that the doors were swinging back and forth and people yeah. were in danger of having their fingers sure. squashed. So what do doors do in earthquakes? They will swing. So moving towards a large wooden swinging object is not a protective action. It actually might be more harmful. So you're really that idea of, of moving to a doorway. Now, some of that comes from other parts in the world when unreinforced masonry building where the doorways do provide some. But in New Zealand, in our structures... That is not a necessary thing. But the key thing which I would recommend is not moving during earthquake shaking. So often parents would say, oh, but I needed to go to my children. And it's a normal human reaction to want to protect your young. But you are better to arrive at your children 5, 10, 20 seconds later uninjured than not getting to them at all because you're injured. So communicate with them, but wait for the shaking to stop. Now, you talked about having access to CCTV footage, which you could actually watch what people yeah. were doing after and how they responded. What did people do? A whole lot of actions. There were there was a range from less than 20% of people actually went drop cover hold. Most people just stayed put, just held on and waited, which is... Like I did in the cable car. Yeah, name. which is a good action. Some Some people did more flight it's a natural flight response to to something scary and that is in fact the risky part trying to move during earthquake shaking you're putting yourself at risk so you're better to sort of wait for it to stop even if it seems to go on for a while so shelter in place so to speak now if you are beside a window or somewhere there you might step to the left or to the right you might move a little bit you don't have to wait long and then you can take your protective action and what did you find people did after that initial response? Most of the, most people just standing, doing nothing. Afterwards, people obviously tried to make a sense of what had happened. There was obviously a desire to leave the facility, but the advice is to stay put until advised what to do. Now, the one situation where this differs is for long earthquakes if you are on the coast. So the advice there is long, strong, get gone. We ah, want tsunami to, risk. Yeah. So that should follow those at risk at near sea level after a large earthquake. But you need to wait for the shaking to stop and then take the response action. Those few seconds won't make a difference really. 
but you also don't want to delay your departure. So there is a mixed message here, and it's quite difficult to communicate at times, and people get confused. So one hand, we don't want people to move during the earthquake, but we don't want them to stay after the earthquake if they are at risk from a tsunami. And if you, if in doubt, so stronger than a minute or cannot stand up, so shorter than a minute but very severe, on both those occasions you should follow the advice and move to high ground. So do you have data from tsunami alert times about what people actually do in terms of do they stay put or do they go? Yes, so we did a study in Patoni and Eastbourne immediately the weeks after the Kaikoura earthquake and we sampled the community and we found around 65% of people evacuated but only 19% or so evacuated immediately. So there was a delay in departure, and that potentially with the travel time, if there had been an eruption nearer, is, is too slow. So it's really pleasing that people and the majority of people did leave low-level uh, coastal areas quickly, but many of them delayed their departures, which was a problem. So they sort of got it right, but they need to do it quicker was there an official tsunami warning? Yes, there was. But the first warning, as we keep telling them, the first warning is nature itself. You must recognise that the official warnings are going to be delayed because the technology and the transmission of them. So actually the warning is nature. So if nature tells you that there's been a large earthquake that you can't stand up or is long duration, you need to hear the call of nature and respond. That's the life safety response for near-source earthquakes that generate tsunami. I'm just thinking that Eastbourne must be an interesting situation because for people who aren't familiar with it, Eastbourne and Wellington is effectively at the end of a very long dead-end road, and so there is only one way out. There is so what happened? People went up. It is a short walk to high ground and for most of Eastbourne. Eastbourne is actually has less travel time, not by vehicle, but by foot or other means, to high ground than some of the areas that are flatter and wider. So Potone, for instance, has areas that is <laughs> that are further travel time from from high ground. But even then you can still get to safety with it if you leave immediately. So do you recommend that people do that thing of thinking about, like I do in my office at work, thinking about what you would do in different locations, like thinking ahead about what your response yeah. could be? That's where the shakeout, the annual shakeout exercise and the tsunami hikoi is designed for that. We want to prepare New Zealanders at least once a year, but we prefer to do more often, to think about what they would do in their workplace, their school place, their home, what they would do ahead of time. So what we know is that people who have thought about it are more likely to respond quickly and efficiently than those who haven't thought about it. So we know that's human behaviour on many fields. So even having the conversation, practising, having a drill is important. And we saw that in Japan. So Japan, the Tahu tsunami, about 95% of all people who were in an area subsequently inundated by the tsunami evacuated before the tsunami arrived. So even though 5% of a large number is a large number, so there were fatalities, that's a very high response rate. Our data from the Kakarua didn't generate a damaging tsunami, but we had less than that. So we need to do better. People need to understand that they actually have the means, in most cases, not all, to move to safety, and it's about a decision they make. They have to make it quickly and efficiently, and if they do, they will survive.
So you said we've had eight earthquake events, injury-causing events in recent times. That's quite a succession in, in a short time. Do you find that that's actually increasing people's preparedness? Is being exposed to that many earthquakes making us better prepared? I think it's both yes and there's a sort of no to it as well. So what we know is that people who personally experience events will carry that memory to the future so they are better prepared for the next events. And the more they have, the more they are both psychologically prepared but often other preparedness measures follow. What we find is this idea that it's a good wake-up call for others. We're not seeing that fully translate. So the areas that have been affected by recent earthquakes, the population will do better next time, all things being equal. But the assumption that it is useful for other areas that haven't, especially lower seismic hazard zones, we're not seeing that translation into being a problem that would affect them in the future. So the vicarious experience through others, does not necessarily lead to change in people's behaviour of those who have not experienced it. So hence the importance of drills, because for many people, the the next damaging earthquake or the one that will affect them is their first earthquake. So it's easier to prepare for those who have already been through it. But equally, if you go through an earthquake and it doesn't have a negative consequence to you, it can also... affect your perception of the need to prepare for the future. So they're both good and bad at the same time. So as a nation, we are more prepared for future earthquakes, but actually we've also, not everyone is exposed, so not everyone is prepared individually or in a community level for those who have not experienced earthquakes. And the next one they experience might be the first one, and hence the difficulty of really preparing for things that you've never experienced before. In terms of fatalities, the Napier earthquake is our still our most fatal earthquake? In in, in historic times, in, yes. Just in historic times. Yeah. So a lot of the issues there were to do with unreinforced masonry buildings? So that led to the change in our building code, but we also saw... Unfortunately, the loss of life from unreinforced masonry buildings in, in Canterbury following the, 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 the second earthquake. So many of those buildings that had that caused fatalities were recognised as unsafe, were many of them due to be taken down, but the adequate setback zones and other things didn't happen and we still exposed the population to those and there were 46, I think, fatalities. Now... Earthquakes do seismically cleanse communities, so the unreinforced masonry buildings are removed by events. But we've also got other parts in New Zealand, and one of the trouble with URM, unreinforced masonry, is that many of our finest heritage buildings, and they're often in in areas where the economics of strength for them is difficult, and there are challenges that communities face for protecting heritage, Um, strengthening these buildings without really the economics of it. And there are policies in place to to assist, especially from the heritage perspective. And we've also got a timeline under the sort of new legislation about strengthening buildings. So there is an endeavour to reduce the risk over time. And the next earthquake could be tomorrow. So you're still not eliminating the risk. You're just reducing it sort of collectively over time for the whole country but we are still vulnerable to the next earthquake. So we can hopefully in the future eliminate 
the life safety risk from buildings, but we will still have injuries from behavioural responses. Now, luckily, they are usually less severe injuries than being hit by something heavy, but they're still often present preventable injuries. So we do need to think about it. But the tsunami risk from the offshore earthquake risk does present a life safety risk that engineering and other will not eliminate. Or an evacuation may be in some cases in buildings that are high enough and strong enough going up, so it doesn't need to have to be cross-country. Policies around that are still being worked through, so we've still got some way to go to address these risks, but we are, every day we're getting better and things are improving, but we need to keep it up. So I do recommend people do do the shakeout annual shakeout events and do practice tsunami evacuations. We're seeing increasing numbers of schools and communities choosing to be part of that and un- actually understand the reason for it. So it is really encouraging to see increased participation in these annual exercises. But understanding that the actual really importance of them, um, I think we could do more on that front. Thanks, David. David Johnston is a social scientist with GNS Science, and he's director of the Joint Centre for Disaster Research in the School of Psychology at Massey University. And that's the show. Want to listen again? Just head to our webpage, rnz.co.nz slash ourchangingworld. We are also available as a podcast on your favourite app. Stay in touch. We're on Facebook and Twitter as RNZ Science. Many thanks for your company. I'll be back next week. But until then, it's good night from me, Alison Balance, Paul Marier.